Hi, I'm Azim Azar, and you're listening to Exponential View, a weekly podcast in which I explore all the ways our world is changing under the force of technology. Now, if you're a first-time listener, you might want to know that this second season of the Exponential View podcast is all about the political economy of technology. In previous episodes, I spoke to economists, investors, entrepreneurs, and policymakers shaping the future of society and technology. So you might want to browse through the archives and subscribe to receive a new mind-expanding conversation each week. In today's episode, I'm in conversation with Emile Ephraim, the CEO and co-founder of Neo4j, an impressive young company that makes the world's most popular graph database. Now, most of us won't have heard of graph databases, but if you're using the internet for shopping, social networks, online banking, or a plethora of other applications, the likelihood is your data is going to be stored somewhere on a graph database. It's remarkable because as a technology, it didn't really exist 20 years ago. They're a powerful tool that can be used to map, analyze, and manipulate the digital and real-world networks we are all now part of. Emile coined the term graph database, which led to the creation of this industry category about 10 years ago. He will go deeper into explaining the technology and its importance and impact on our consumer experience and our privacy. But we start discussing an interesting and powerful example, how this technology helped investigative journalists root out some of the most incandescent cases of tax evasion and outright financial fraud by the world's richest and most powerful men and women, the Panama Papers. For the next few weeks, the Exponential View podcast is sponsored by Spotify. Like many of you, I've been using it as my music platform of choice. So it's exciting that Spotify is also getting into the spoken word through its new podcast service. Just open the app and search for your favorite podcast, Exponential View. So I'm here with Emil Ephraim, who's the founder and CEO of Neo4j. Uh, Emil, it's great to have you on this podcast. Fantastic. Thanks. Fantastic to be here. Now, you are based in Malmö in Sweden, which is famous, amongst other things, for the uh, being the home of Karl Ove Nersgaard, the uh, author who wrote the, the six-book series on his own life. But I'm, the I'm pronouncing... The Norwegian author. Yeah, the Norwegian author, Knausgaard. The Norwegian author, Knausgaard, right. And, and then I'm pronouncing your name, Efrem, and I'm thinking, that doesn't sound very Swedish. Uh, I, I, what, what's the story there? Yeah, a lot of people think it's French, actually. Um, but uh, the, the actual backstory, the, the, the dirty secret, you know, as it were, is that um, my grandfather's father, um, his name was Johansson which is like the Swedish of all Swedish names. <laughs> and there's like, I don't know what the population of Sweden was at the time, 5 million maybe. I bet 3 million of them were called Johansson, right? Um, so it's like, I'm a unique snowflake. You know, I, I want to be named something unique. Um, his dad, like in his turn, um, was called Ephraim, the, the Hebrew, like the biblical name Ephraim. And so I think he was just playing around with that name. He was probably really drunk, probably high, you know, something, something like that. Um, and just played around with it until he arrived for some reason that I cannot explain with Ephraim. Um, and that's the, that's the fascinating story behind that. It is actually a fascinating story. And those, those hops, those little hops from one entity to the next entity makes me think a little bit of the technology that you have done so much to build and popularize in the world, which is uh, graph databases. Now, we have a very broad 
group of people listening to this conversation. So graph databases are um, really quite nerdy, and it may be quite challenging to explain why I think it's important enough for us to spend 40 minutes talking about them uh, on this podcast. And perhaps our starting point should really be something tangible. Um, your uh, technology was used a few years ago um, in, a, in a fantastic piece of journalistic work called the Panama Papers. Uh, and maybe that's a good way of explaining uh, why, what the Panama Papers were, why they matter, and, and what we found out and why it was only really possible uh, using this particular technology. Sure. Yeah. So, so this was um, basically the biggest story, new story worldwide for most of 2016 until um, Brexit happened and then Trump happened. So 2016 was, was quite, quite a year. But, but leading up to that, for several months, it was the, the biggest story worldwide. And, and what it was, was that there was this law firm called Mossack Fondeca uh, based in Panama uh, who's specialized in in offshore tax accounts. So uh, it was uh, um, specialized in setting up accounts for basically the, the rich and the famous uh, or the rich and the infamous um, accounts in offshore tax jurisdictions, which could be used for legal tax planning purposes, which is perfectly fine, uh, or for illegal tax evasion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was originally an, an ex-employee who reached out to this this German uh, newspaper, the Süddeutsche Zeitung, who said that hey, you know, it, you know, he or she was anonymous. We only know them as John Doe. Um, they said, hey, I have the entire digital records of this from from inception since since the 70s of this law firm, all its emails, all the government scan form, all the meeting minutes, like all that kind of stuff. I have all of that. Do you guys want to have a look at it? And of course, they said yes. Fast forward several years, I think it's like 18 to 24 months. And we had these massive stories breaking where the prime minister of Iceland had to resign. The prime minister of Pakistan subsequently had to resign and so on and so forth. Putin was in there. Queen Elizabeth was in there and so on and so forth. And so the question then is what happened between they got this multiple terabytes worth of data mm-hmm. and until they found out that, you know, right. um, Gunnlaugsson, Sigmund or Gunnlaugsson, the, the Icelandic prime minister, was actually in there, right? Yeah. And, and that's, where we, that, that's where we came in, right? And it's a lot of data, right? Just to contextualize terabytes of data, it's, it's what, hundreds of millions of records, tens of millions, hundreds of thousands? It's, it's tens of millions. Uh, I think it was like 11 and a half or 13 and a half million records, uh, which, which is a lot if you think of the fact that each record is something like uh, a government form filled out, you know, or something like that, right? Uh, so this is not in the world of big data where you have a record being like a sensor-generated thing or something like that. This is actually manually human-generated content, right? Mm. Um, and, and so then the big question is, like, how do you get from that big binary blob of data until, you know, the Icelandic prime minister? And what they ended up doing is that they reached out to this organization called the ICIJ, the International uh, Coalition of Investigative Journalists, uh, which is like a small organization, 10, 15 people, I think, based in D.C. primarily. Mm. Um, and, and they ran this through this massive pipeline of, it's called an ETL pipeline, which at some point, if we're going to go all, all tech geeky, we can double click on that. But basically what that means, it, it, it takes this data and it moves it into a database. They used OCR technology, if you recall that, you know, yeah. to figure out 
uh, you know, look at, at, at images and figure out what the actual text was in there. And then ultimately they ended up with basically think of it as just long spreadsheets of information, right? And those spreadsheets were things like, hey, Azimazar, maybe not Azim, I don't know if you were in there. <laughs> I wasn't. I did search. I did have to say that I, I, I did search for it for myself just in case. But there were a few people I didn't had physically met, right? So oh, really? away interesting. From there were no yeah. Aphrams in there either. I, I checked that too. Yeah. Um, but but so so think like first name Azim, last mm. name is R, like your address and stuff like that. And like a long list of things of things like that, right? And they couldn't make and like from that, the journalists just look at that and like, how, how can I make any sense out of this, right? Mm -hmm. And they couldn't. So what they, the, the ICIJ people figured out uh, was that, hey, you know what? What if we take a network view of this instead? Rather than just looking at it as a long list of things, but look, let's look at this as concepts connected to one another. Yeah, so what is a network in this, in this context? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So let's, let's take the, the Prime Minister of Iceland, right? He was not directly connected to an offshore tax Haven account, right? Um, he instead, the, the reality was that he lived at an address. At that address, another person lived who subsequently turned out to be his wife. That person then was an officer of a company. That company had an uh, account in an offshore tax haven. And so at that point, you can see that's what five, six, seven hops away from the prime minister. And it's very, I mean, there, I guess there's a, there's a saying in English, like hidden in plain sight, right? There's nothing hidden in plain sight about that. It was all about how someone is connected like indirectly to mm -hmm. an offshore bank account. Um, and that's where our technology comes in. So what we do is that we look at data along connections. So we think of data not just as rows and columns, just not just as silos, but how they're connected. Mm -hmm. right? and, and there is an English uh, saying, which is when you understand something, you're connecting the dots. So right. that's ultimately what we're doing. We're helping... So if we think about the Icelandic prime minister in this instance, the you had you had the Icelandic prime minister and you had his wife. Um, you didn't know from the documents that they were naturally connected, but you were able to see that they both lived at the same address. So in a way, I could you could imagine that if 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 he was one city and she was another city, there was a road between them, and the road between them was that common address. That's a, that's exactly right. Right. Right, right. Um, okay, and and so 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 that is the start of the of the mapping of these eleven million documents into um, into your graph, into your network. That's exactly right. Yeah. What happens then? So then they use this technology in order to find out all these different things. And so you can imagine, just think about being a journalist, and you're trying to you're you're covering Iceland, you're an Icelandic journalist, right? And you get just a list of people in Iceland and like, how do you go from there? Well, it turns out that if you can just visually look at it, look at it in that way, you're able to see these patterns. And that's right. ultimately what made them uncover all these different things with, with Putin. Putin wasn't directly in there, but something like his niece was married to someone who had a company who was, you know, it's like equivalent to the Icelandic prime minister, those, those kinds of indirect connections so, so you th we think of these these entities these these people um as as nodes right in a in a graph we we, we call them nodes um and the, the connections between them i guess are called edges um 
We call them relationships. I you think call them relationships. That's, that's the main word. Yeah. 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 Okay. So you call them relationships. You got nodes and relationships. So when you look at the the Panama Papers, how many nodes did there end up being, and how many relationships uh, were there? Yeah, there there was tens of millions of of nodes. I don't remember the exact uh, mm-hmm. number, but tens of millions, and I think about a hundred million relationships. And that's very commonly the case if you have. And the number of nodes, the number of concepts is typically smaller than how they relate to one another, right? And right. that's also relates to Metcalfe's law in network theory, like actual computer network theory, right? Which talks about the, the value of the network increases with not linearly, but the number of, of entities or nodes, it increases with the square of that, right? Mm. So you've, you've constructed, uh, taken this thing that's already big and complex, and it sounds like you've made it even bigger and more complexer. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, there's a film like that, isn't there? Complex and complexer. Yeah. Why does that help us? That's a good question. Well, so, so at, at the end of the day, so the way that I look at like taking a, a huge step back, right? So we, we live in this age where we've seen this massive explosion of data, right? And it's, it's caused by a number of different things, like the the devices we have in our pockets is a is a huge part of that. Um, the fact that we have you know between fourteen to twenty different signals being generated every second from each and every one of these mobile phones, um, and they, they're just getting stored in the cloud, right? We have to have somewhere to to store all that, right, um, and make sense of it. And and so we we, we live in this wor- world of an explosion of, of data. This in turn has led to a fact that we used to have only one type of database. Like when I grew up as a professional program in the 90s, there was only one type of database. It was the tried, true, and proven relational database, which is unfortunately a little bit um, uh, improperly named. Ironically enough, the relational database is really bad with the relationships, as mm-hmm. it turns out, right? right. It's very good with well-structured tabular data, but really bad with how things are connected, right? Um, but so because of this explosion of big data in the, in the, for the past five, 10 years, we've seen massive amount of innovation in, in mm-hmm. the world of data infrastructure technology. Mm-hmm. And that's where we play. And we think that the world of connected data, connected data is something very fundamental. I think if you, I don't want to go too philosophical on you uh, mm-hmm. unless you really want me to. And then we'll... <laughs> yeah, we'll have a chance, I'm sure. Yeah. But, um, but fundamentally, it comes down to the fact that um, I th- actually think that what knowledge is, is how things relate to one another. Uh, I, have a, I have a one-year-old daughter. Um, and I think that when babies are born and they, they are born into this world, they know only a very few small amount of concepts. Something like they know mom, Right. And they know temperature probably, right? Heat and cold. They probably know boobs, right? Because that's kind of vital in, in mm-hmm. the early days. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as they learn new, and I see this every day with my daughter, as, as she understands new concepts, she makes sense of them by relating them to previously known concepts. Dad, he's kind of like mom, right? Um, and so I actually think that what knowledge is, is taking an unknown concept and contextualizing it by relating it to previously understood concepts, right? So that's all about how things are connected. And right. that is the fundamental building block that we enable in the world of data. We, I think we, we, that's such an interesting angle um, for us to, to explore during this conversation. I, I suppose if we go back historically, my understanding is that um, a lot of our thinking about networks and graphs, which was what is enabled by uh, Neo4j as a technology dates back to uh, the amazing mathematician uh, Leonard uh, Euler. 
1736 and the you know the bridges of of Konigsberg, which is now of course um, the Kalin, uh, Kaliningrad in that uh, Kalin Oblast in Russia. Um, and he was um, uh, he he observed there were seven bridges, um, and he was trying to to think about efficient ways of getting over all seven bridges but only going over each one once it's like one of those puzzles you you have on an on an iphone um and we that i suppose is where we started to to first think about the theory um of of graphs uh, as it were um first question i suppose is am i use it is it fair to use graph and network interchangeably in this yes conversation? It, it actually is and 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 so usually when I explain it to people, I, I use graphs and networks completely interchangeably. And I think that for people who are more mathy, graph mm -hmm. is is more popular, right? Um, but for people who aren't, graph has the the really bad property in that people think of you know an x-axis and a y-axis and a line, right. right? Right. And so they think of what they do in Excel, and I call those charts, but they all they're also <laughs> called graphs, they're right? Graphs, uh, right? And I think that the other way that I usually talk about it is that I say that, hey, you know how Mark Zuckerberg says the social graph? You know, yeah. he, he's not talking about some visual, he's talking about the network of between people, right? right? That's that 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 graph, right? And 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 so to your point, you you talked about the fact that we're generating lots of signals um, from our devices. In in my last company, which was called Peer Index, we were actually building analytics on top of the social network. So we modeled uh, about three hundred and eighty million uh, people. Each each person was what we call a node on the graph, and they were connected to a number of other nodes. Um, and the connections would be things like whether they interacted with each other, or they might even be whether they have shared interests. If you are a human living somewhere and using an internet service, the likelihood is you are going to be using a service that is delivering something to you from a graph database, which is a technology that didn't really exist 20 years ago. Very likely you've used it today with absolute certainty you've used it this week. Right, right. And so you said that seven out of ten of the largest U.S. retailers are using uh, graph databases or your graph database. What are, what are they doing with it? I mean, they're not hunting for offshore accounts. I, I take it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's true. Although the banks, like after the Panama Papers happened, which which arguably wasn't a big commercial success for us, because like these journalists, they all used it pro bono, right? I mean, yeah. they, they used our free and open source version, mm. uh, even though like we helped them get started and stuff like that um, and help them out along the way. They, they didn't, we didn't sell our software to them. Right. Um, but based on that, like many of the biggest banks contacted us and said, Hey, how come these journalists who are on the outside know more about our accounts than we do ourselves? Right. <laughs> and we said, well, it's because you used the wrong technology and fast forward to today, 20 of the 25 biggest banks use us. Right. Um, so, so there's some application of that, but but your question was about uh, retail, mm. and there, there's a lot of areas in retail where where graphs and connected data make sense. A very common one is recommendation engines, right? right? So, so so think that your Walmart is one of our customers, right? Um, they have stored the purchase history um, in uh, in a mainframe database for decades, mm. right? So think, uh, you know. Uh, just a long list of something like customer ID, product ID, date, time, and dollar amount, right? Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> and then just every row looks exactly the same, and there's a gazillion of them, right? Right. Um, now, it turns out that if you want to do recommendations, if you take exactly that data, but you just shift perspective a little bit, and you say that actually, when you have customer ID and product ID just in a row like that, um, that's actually an implicit relationship. It actually means that Azim has bought this particular product. And mm -hmm. let's say that you bought these three products, and then Emil has bought also has also bought those three products. And then maybe that means we have the same taste. And let's look at, hey, let's take this fourth product and let's recommend that one to Azim. Right. In that trivial little example, just these three products and, and an additional fourth one, uh, that's actually 12 hops. Right. And if you look at uh, a and, and hop is what? Hop is something that is expensive and difficult to do, is it? Very, exactly. It's, it's not only expensive, it's, no, no pun intended, considering the, the, the title of this podcast, but it's exponentially expensive, right? right? So with, with even trivial amounts of data, so 10,000 rows, 100,000 rows, you can't do more than three hops in a relational database uh, without bursting through the one second wall. And once you get, you're through one, a, a second, then at that point, you really can't be the back end to any kind of website, you know, request response type system, right? And then the fourth hop is minute, fifth hop hours, and once you get, start going to six and seven, we're talking weeks. Um, right. And we do, just, just for reference, we do one to two million hops per second. It's just a completely different order of magnitude. Oh, wow. Okay. So you're doing 10, a million hops a second, and what does a traditional technology do? Yeah, up to three in less than a second. <laughs> right. Okay. So it's... 300,000 times faster. Yeah, I mean, yeah. We, 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 we frequently have customers saying that, hey, it's a million times faster, it's a thousand times faster. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, million times faster. That is quite something. So in a, in a very, very deep data-rich uh, world that we now live in, um, having something that is a million times faster is, is tremendously important because actually it turn, turns problems that are otherwise completely intractable into problems that are tractable. Right. That's exactly um, right. And, and the bigger story here, even bigger than, than our company and our product category, is that we're moving away from this era of the one-size-fits-all database mm -hmm. is everything, right? So, you know, when I grew up in the 90s as a professional uh, programmer, like, there were four choices of databases, you know, Microsoft SQL Server, Oracle, DB2, and so on and so forth. And they were all the same data model. They were all the same type. They were all relational databases. It was basically a vendor choice, right? Mm -hmm. But you, there was no time when you didn't put data in a relational database. You just, it was just a question of which vendor you chose, right? Um, and then fast forward to today, what the bigger story now is that there's all these specialized databases. Like data is just too big and, and too expensive and too valuable to be able to shove it all into one thing, right? Right. So I think the the broader role of the data architect in the future is going to be take your data set and all data sets will be big, right? And you say that, hey, this area over here is really well structured. Awesome. Let's put that in a relational database. This area over here is actually very document oriented. Great. Let's put that in a document database mm -hmm. like MongoDB, for example, right? Mm -hmm. Hey, and this area over here is really connected. Let's take that and put that in a graph database. Just a reminder, this podcast is supported by Spotify. They've contributed to making music more accessible in the past decade, and I'm excited about their new feature, which brings podcasts closer to listeners all around the world. So find Spotify today and subscribe to the EV podcast there. Now, back to our conversation. But what types of uh, data uh, are best suited to 
the graph database? Because it feels yeah. like we managed until 2000 without using these things, and now we seem to need them because they're a million times faster than the competition. Yep. Um, you talked about uh, retail purchases. You've touched on um, relationships in a in this sort of um, financial fraud area. Um, what things lend themselves to graph representations? Yeah, the most fun, like the, the most fundamental way to answer that question is to go back to the shape of the data and say whenever there's value in figuring out how things are connected, right? And then you can derive all kinds of business use cases from that, right? One business use case is what we talked about with the Panama Papers, right? Which is, well, if it if it matters how things are connected, let's see how Siegmundur Gunnlaugsson is connected to an offshore bank, bank account, right? The Icelandic prime minister, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's one example. Or if it matters how things are connected, well, let's see how what products Azim are connected to and what people those products are connected to. And then, let, right. then let's do recommendations based on that, right? Mm-hmm. And so other examples of that is, let's take data center operations, right? If you want to understand that if you have a, a breach over there in your database, like, sorry, in your data center, how can that spread? Well, it turns out that if you have a if, if you breach all the way over there, it can connect through this firewall and then through this router. And over here, we have a number of connections. And all of a sudden, it's impacted my entire operations, right? In order to figure that out, you need to build up a model of your data center. And that relies, of course, on how things are connected. It's not just the, the compute units and the storage units in isolation. Mm. The same is true for a big telco, right? Right. So if your entire, like, if, if you're a telco, your entire business is managing big networks. So what happens if that cell tower over there blows down, right? Or what happens if 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 I install a new cell tower over here? How is that going to cascade across my entire network? Uh, that's all about how things are connected. Um, and so those are some example use cases. And and you touched on one earlier when you were talking about your your daughter, because I hear that there are quite a lot of artificial intelligence uh, applications of uh, of of networks, um, and in particular, this idea that you you can represent things um, through the relationships, right? So you can have an entity. Uh, so, so mother is a type of person and father is a type of person and mother and father are both a type of parent. Um, uh, what, what is the application of, of networks in the field of, of AI? Great question. So, so I think that there's a very intimate relationship between graphs and AI. So if you take any machine learning textbook, uh, you're going to open it up, and all over the place, or you're going to see graph algorithms, right? Mm-hmm. And this comes back to that kind of more fundamental theoretical part of what we do, which is the uh, the Euler and the seven bridges of Königsberg and 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 stuff like that, right? Um, and so, so th- it turns out to be very valuable in machine learning to have a graph perspective. So that's kind of the the, the highest highest level. More concretely, what we see people doing today is a number of different things. One is what's called knowledge graphs. And this, this is exactly that, that thought that I articulated earlier that, you know, actually what human knowledge is, is understanding how th- things relate to one another. Um, Google wrote this, this blog post a couple of years ago where they said that they believe that graph-based machine learning is one of the pillars of the future of AI. And in fact, they've, they've um, started transitioning all of their AI services, all their ML, to start using graphs and knowledge graphs, right? Um, and so that's 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 an example of it. Um, eBay Shopbot is uh, is a uh, is a common example. I don't know um, how international your your audience is. E- eBay Shopbot is at least available in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And it's basically it's a it's a chatbot interface to eBay 
uh, I guess chatbot because it was conceived of a couple of years ago when chatbots were, <laughs> were cool. <laughs> right? were, yeah, when they were cool, right? But um, and and for some reason, like that, that has never really worked for me. I'm not a chatbot type person. I think it might be a general like, generational thing. I guess the people who remember what ASP stands for, they generally don't <laughs> do chatbots, okay, right? Yeah, yeah. But I'm a huge sucker for voice. I I I just love voice. And obviously, that's a really powerful chat interface, right? And so what they, what eBay uses um, Neo4j for is to build up this massive knowledge graph that knows that when I say, hey, eBay, um, I want to buy a bag, they know that I'm more likely to mean, you know, a backpack than a woman's handbag, for example. Right. Um, and so they know that a woman's handbag is a bag, and they know that backpack is a bag, but actually people who are like me, are more likely to want backpacks than women ha women's handbags, right? Um, so stuff like that. So it, it, it brings That's that almost like common sense. AI. That's almost like common sense. Yeah, it, it, it is, right? But in, in the funny thing in, in the world of AI is that common sense isn't all that common, right? <laughs> no, it's not. It's not, right? And people have spent a lot of time trying to hand build uh, that common common sense, often, often decades. In fact, I was involved briefly in a company which Amazon Alexa acquired uh, which which built essentially a a similar system. It was called uh, True Knowledge at the time. Became Evy Technologies, and it had knowledge that a human being had a property called a weight, uh, but that um, and that was that was important. But it also understood that places didn't have weights. Uh, right. as it were right and and then they, I didn't they know you were involved with true knowledge like, oh, I don't you know the true knowledge yeah. that was like 10 years ago now or something like it that it was 10 years ago yeah i was lucky yeah. to spend a, a short time uh, helping them on the product side i mean really and they're now part of alexa so they're doing some very interesting things uh, now um so it feels like like if we um that that ai based applications um can will be a definitely be a growth area and highly enabled by by the technology, because you you do there is there's a lot that is embedded um, in your example of the bags. There's a lot that's embedded in the fact that you are perhaps buying, um, you know, uh, audio equipment and a certain type of technology and shoes that other that that are men's shoes um, and that people who are buying handbags are buying women's shoes and sort of a different class of set of products. And you, you almost, it's not quite for free, but the, you reveal that latent structure in the database. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, and I think what's, what's important, there's, there's basically two broad ways to think about this, about taxonomizing like knowledge, right? There's the, there's the top down and there's the, the bottom up, right? And mm -hmm. the, the top down is, is typically human curated. Um, and there's a lot of like high CPU power, like human CPU power, like brain power in, in, involved in it. And it's a massive categorization thing, right? It's mm -hmm. typically called ontologies, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then there's the, the bottom up one, which is, which emerges out of a lot of anecdotal data, right? And that's typically called folksonomies or taxonomies, like tag taxonomy, mm -hmm. not taxonomy, taxonomies, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, and the important thing, I think, from, from our perspective is that both are graph structures, both are networks, right? And, and, and a, a structure like Neo4j, a database like Neo4j is great at capturing both of them. And I think back in the days of true knowledge and, and like whatever, 10 years ago, there was a lot of thought around which, which approach will win out, 
right? And now we know the answer, neither or both. Mm -hmm. They actually augment and, and, um, and empower each other, right? You have persuaded me that graph databases are a kind of critical part of the infrastructure as we move into this data economy. I mean, I think I see it all over the place. And to be honest, and I'll say this to all my listeners, I didn't need that much persuading. It's one of the reasons uh, we're having this conversation. I think there are really fundamental and important uh, Well, you te- saw it back technology. in 2009. That was very early. Yes. And you, you know, there is something about um, my watershed moment um, with respect to, to, to these social networks and social graphs actually came in about 1996, when a guy called Valdis Krebs wrote an essay in a now defunct newsletter called Release 1.0. And in it, he introduced um, social network analysis. And he was talking about um, how you you need to see what's real, not what's reported in organizations. So what's reported is a traditional hierarchy and CEOs at the top and, and so on and so forth. But that doesn't really show how power flows because power and influence flows across um, things like trust and communication flows, who emails who, who's always CC'd. And you could go in and, and you know, this, this approach go in and hand map the people and the strength of their relationships and the nature of that those relationships. And I think sociologists had been doing this for a while. So Mark Granovetter uh, did this, this work in, in the 1970s. And of course, you had the six degrees um, uh, experiment about 10 years uh, before that, where people tried to to, to demonstrate that we were actually quite closely, closely connected. But this particular essay, uh, was was um, a, 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 a penny drop moment for me, or maybe more than a penny, because then I did spend 10 years of my life building a company in this space, mm-hmm. was that actually there's fundamentally something subversive about doing social network analysis or graph analysis, because graph analysis identifies what's really there, what's implicit but real, not what's explicit but unreal. And so when in, in, in Valdis's essay, uh, you know, he described how you're able to map which parts of an organization really mattered and which didn't matter by looking at who spoke to whom and when and over what time period. So, so I, I mean, and, and, and what's happened in the last 20 years, of course, is that the number of things that we now map digitally like that has increased. It's gone from a few hundred people and a few dozen organizations to billions and billions of people and tens of billions of devices. So absolutely kind of fundamental foundational um, technology for the next yeah, 20, 30 years, however far far ahead we want to look. Um, but I, I'm curious about how a technology like this comes to comes to fruition because I, I don't I don't remember any of the mainstream vendors, um, sales teams pitching this um in 2005 and 2010. Uh it, it really was a kind of developer-driven technology and you've got to a stage now where you've got very widespread usage what's your perspective on how you bring something like this um up to market yeah it's it's a great question and one that i've spent like most of my professional life exploring right right well so so a couple of thoughts and we could easily record like a series of podcasts just just on this topic right um but um couple of things, right? One of the things that we very early decided to do was uh, to define our own category, right? And, and you, you can imagine that we could have taken this fundamental technology that we had to market in a very different way. We could have said, for example, this is a database accelerator. Um, it runs mm-hmm. side by side with your real database. 
right. and it makes some queries faster. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that would be a completely valid way of positioning the, the, the technology and taking it to market, right? Um, we very strongly felt that, no, this deserves its own category. It's not just like augmenting other databases. And so the question then was, so the name of the product is Neo4j, right? Neo4j is an X, solve for X. What is mm-hmm. X, right? Well, on some level, X is a database. So it's a database. But just saying Neo4j is a database, especially back in 2009, like would have not just undersold it, but it would have caused confusion because clearly it was very different from these other things that we call a database, Oracle, SQL Server, and so on and mm-hmm. so forth, right? Um, and so we needed a, a category name for it. And we tried out a bunch of different things. One of the first things that I tried was uh, a network-oriented database, right? That didn't really work. I right. tried NetBase, too. <laughs> I took the world network and database and just created NetBase. So Neo4j is a NetBase. Um, and that didn't really work either. I always wanted to call it the graph database, but I was afraid of that confusion that we talked about earlier, right? Where like graph to a lot of people means Means chart. chart. Right. Exactly. Um, But then Mark Zuckerberg came along and he said, for the longest time on facebook.com, it it had one line saying, Facebook is a utility for the social graph. And I'm like, all right, if this dude can use the word graph with a consumer offering, like I'm going to... and like I'm, I have the most ticky type, like with a developer audience, which we'll right. get to in a second. Then I'm going to use that word too. And so we put the word graph and database together, called it graph database, and it just really took off. It just resonated with everyone. Like I, I had this one moment where I, I, I was talking. I was at a party. This is pre kids and pre startup, right? So I could go to parties. Um, and uh, I bumped into this guy, and he was. This was in the southern part of Sweden, so he, he worked at Ericsson. Um, and and uh, and he asked us, "What do you do?" After some chit chatting, and and I, well, I just thought to myself, um, "I'm going to try out this new positioning." So I said, "I work at a graph database company. Have you heard anything about graph database and, and graph databases?" And he said, "Well, um, yeah. I mean, I remember them from college, but I haven't I haven't played around much with them lately." And I thought to myself, no, you don't, because I just coined the term two weeks ago, right? right. Um, but it had this magical property where people believed it was a real thing before it actually was a real thing, right? Um, and Amazing. so it really resonated with the market. I but think when that- you said when you say people, you don't, you, I mean, you mean a very specific type of person, right? You're talking about developers, you're talking about uh, developers who have got applications that are running into the limits of the mainstream products. That, that's exactly right, and that's a good segue to the to the second part. Then, so, so the, I guess the, the 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 broader question that you asked a, a while ago is like, how do I think about taking this type of technology to market? And the first one is is the category creation piece, right? Uh, so create its own category, and the second one is what what I think of as practitioner led adoption, which in our case means developer um, led messaging, right? And so. What this means to me is that I, I very early realized that, hey, we're going to go up against, you know, some of the biggest and baddest or at least biggest and wealthiest companies on the planet, Oracle, IBM, Microsoft, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. on and so forth, right? Um, there's no way I'm going to be able to outmarket them, right? So I need to create this, this, um, uh, this phenomena, this, this massive groundswell of support. Uh, amongst developers. If these graph databases are now big enough to represent tens of billions, 
of, uh, of objects and hundreds of billions of relationships. It just feels to me that we can now encapsulate every single person um, into one of these, uh, into any a single instance of one of these. Um, will, will these new graphs allow us to hide if we if we want to hide? Is that a is that a kind of feature choice of of humanity in the world post graph databases? I the, the candid answer to that is I don't think the, that we can. Uh, even if if individual nodes, if you will, if individual people say that hey, I want to be incognito. Um, even if there's regulatory support for that, there's just so much contextual information out there. Um, there's so much information about people who are similar to you, people who you are connected to, uh, that won't stay off the radar, that won't say no, like you're not, I don't want you to store anything about me because they want, they're willing to trade that, um, uh, that, possibly invasion of privacy, if you want to look at it in a negative way, mm-hmm. for increased convenience. And, right. and I think just the, the, the candid, harsh reality of it, of it is that there are more people who want, are willing to do that than who are not. And, and that mean, then means that there's so many people surrounding you that are willing to do that, that will be stored in, in these systems, graph-based or non, and that have explicit or implicit connections to you. That that means that these systems will be able to infer so much about you um, anyway, and that's yeah, not I, that's not a a statement on whether that's good or bad. I just think that's facts of of, of how right. the technology works. Yeah, I, I I hear you, and and I think that's something that we identified within uh, peer index. It was and and I social scientists and network theorists have a, a word they call um, homophily. Uh, which means um, you know likes likes liking in a sense. Uh, birds of a feather flock together. Uh, you could tell a great deal about a a person by the people they were most uh, connected to. Um, and 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 it's actually um, one of the things that, that strikes me is that it's a very natural psychological response. Uh, if you if you love a particular football team and you you loathe another football team, it's quite hard for all your friends to support the other team, right? It just makes okay. conversations full of friction. Um, it, it, what when we as we've created mobility and allowed people to move from their villages to any city in the in the country or any city in the world and change their professions, people tend to group together, right? They 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 move in in herds. Some people a little bit earlier, and then you 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 get clusters. In every city, that this is where the third generation immigrants from this country live, and this is when this religious community lives, um, and so th- there seem to be quite good bottom-up reasons as to why we um, uh, be- behave like that, which are now captured, and they're sort of they can be explored and exploited in, in through the, through these technologies. I suppose that the lens that is new is the is a set of unheard of. Uh, qualities so the, the 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 things that that i didn't know i was part of x group because i didn't have a global view of everyone's behavior uh and so that's what happens when i um you know i just went into uh you know amazon um to look for some things and the people who buy things who are like you who buy things like you is drawing from a group of people who I may have no actual personal connection to or connectedness right. at all, right? So it's it's surfacing stuff about me that I didn't even know about myself. 
and that's certainly like back in the old days, right? With less liquidity of information, right? So be, be, like pre-digital age, like you very tangibly and physically knew who you were connected to and who you at least perceived yourself to be similar to, right? Now that is happening on a completely global scale and also along multiple types of relationships. And this is an, like a subtle point that that not a lot of people, I think, appreciate, right? So uh, there, there's there's a concept in, in network and graph theory called multi-relational uh, networks. Um, and and this is the, the difference between Google in 99 and Google in 2019. Google in 99 had only one type of connections between the pages, right? That's mm-hmm. what page rank is. It's whether these two documents are linked. That's, that, that is what a relationship meant, right, back in the days. Right. Today, there's over 200 types of connections between them, right? And, and this is the, the old knowledge graph that they acquired through MetaWeb, uh, mm-hmm. which, which you and I have talked about uh, before. But now they know that, hey, this web page is actually a description of uh, an author who wrote these books, right? So then you have an author of relationship and has authored these books. So these are two new types of relationships, right? And and what what is happening today is that whereas back in the in the good old days or bad old days, whatever the pre digital days, there is only one type of relationship. It's like where you were physically located, right? Mm-hmm. And today, Azim is has five hundred different types of relationships to probably ten thousand different people. Mm. And you you um, exist in all the, these clusters that overlap with one another, some of whom you have similar Amazon purchase patterns with, some of whom you have similar sports interests with, some of whom you have similar. And it just increasing that liquidity of information creates more of these types of birds of a feather flock together type groups, which I think ultimately is, is, is a hopeful view. Yeah, it, it is hopeful. And I'm curious for, for you as a, you know, you're not so much a practitioner. You're building. You're building the the the, the tools that the practitioners yeah. are, I'm a tool are, builder. are then using. Um, I mean, what would you hope for for them for their behaviour? Because right now, it sometimes feels that these graphs are this data that we all collaboratively input uh, into these systems. The characteristics that emerge from them are not necessarily used for our. Um, group benefit or our societal or, or social benefit. They're used for the the benefits of the firms who've bought the tools, right? So, so in the case of of Amazon, I'm not sure if I need, you know, the X book on a particular topic or need to be tempted by um, the A, B, or the C. Or in the case of Facebook, as a great example, um, you know, what they're really doing is they're using those connections to drive us to stay on the application and ultimately to click on ads because they're, they're a pay for performance ad business. Um, and, it, and, and, and so you're the, you're making the tools. I mean, and I, I'm not sure if Amazon or Facebook specifically use your products, but other companies like them do. Uh, how would you like to, to, to see them used? Yeah, it's a, it's a gr- great question. I mean, I think that one of the, the, the challenging things when you're a tool builder as, as, as we are, is that, um, Technology ultimately is ethically neutral, right? Like you invent a hammer um, and you can use that hammer to hit someone on the head with, <laughs> right? Or you can use it to build build a house so people have a place to live, right? Um, and, and one of the challenges for 
um, for the the hammer manufacturer, the hammer vendor, right? Which, which in this case is me, is that I don't know that upfront. Like mm -hmm. I don't know what people will use my my technology for, and it's a really powerful technology that we build, and and I try to adhere to the to the Spiderman principle, right? With great power comes great responsibility, mm -hmm. right? But especially when you're open source, it's physically impossible for us to protect and guard against all the various uses uh, of our of our technology. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what we can do is we can choose where we where we proactively invest, right? Mm -hmm. We can choose whether we want to approach more military applications of our, our technology, right? Or right. we can choose whether we want to um, approach more Panama Papers investigative journalism type right. stuff. Right? right, and where we spend our time, we can choose that. We can choose which mm. which people do we ultimately help out with, right? So, yeah. you know, and you can also you can also choose how what you do relative to building technologies downwards into the stack or or upwards towards the application, and 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 you you know you made this observation, which is that technologies are are ethically neutral and and you're in a rare position because your technology is really an instantiation of the maths of uh of leonard euler from 283 years ago uh that you can you can actually say that i think a lot of technologists do say well my technology is ethically ethically neutral but they're far enough up away from the the kind of core of the mathematics they're close enough to the application that they that that's not a fair thing for them to be describing themselves as, and so so I suppose one challenge question for you is is you know take an example of building an adapter that allows people to easily predict political affiliation on the on a on a, a network of hundreds of millions of people, right? That is a thing that you could you could build on top of one of these graph databases, and you as Neo Neo4j. Have a choice about whether you would build something like that. No, that that's, that's exactly right. We could choose to do that, or we can choose to do. There, there's now, um, I know of at least 12 independent projects using Neo4j to find the cure for cancer, right? right. We could choose then to support that instead, right? right. And, and just to be clear, I don't think the fact that, that I think that our technology is, is ethically neutral, I don't think that absolves us from any responsibility. I actually think that I am responsible for the ways my technology is being used uh, in, in the world today. It does mean that practically it's very hard to prohibit people from using it in ways that that um, that I disagree with personally, right? Because ultimately, as tool builders, one of our strengths, I think, is that, hey, we don't download any user's information. We mm -hmm. don't like we do none of that. Like we enable other people to use the technology for 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 what they want to use it with, right? Uh, the drawback of that is that I can stop them from doing things either, right? No, it's a it's a great point. You can't you can't stop them, um, but you can we can uh, as we can choose what we want to encourage. Choose what you want to encourage. Choose what you want to uh, educate. Choose the types of uh, things that you. Uh, promote and 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 are storied about your own technology. Uh, Emil, what a great conversation! I, I really enjoyed that. Thank you for Fantastic. making the time. Thank you for making the time today. I can't believe it's over already. We have so many more things to talk about, Azim. There is a lot more. There is a lot more to talk about. But listen, <laughs> we'll thanks take, again. We'll take the next over beer.
Thanks for listening to the Exponential View podcast. The podcast was hosted by me, Azim Azar, the producer was Maria Gavrilov, and the sound editor, Boyan Saviocello. This is a production of E to the Pi I Plus One Limited. Hello.